Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, and why should everybody get in there? Because it's a really fun place to be. It's a, it's very educational, but educational in, as I said, in the fun way. Um, you can get personal uh, answers to various questions. You get insights. You know, the different people in the chat room bring their own insights to whatever subject matter is being discussed. So it gets you thinking in, in different ways. It's, it's a really cool place to hang out during uh, the show itself. So do come join me. That is a provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, in today's spotlight, we turn our attention to what I think uh, has become a very fair question nowadays, and that is whether or not our population is smart enough to take part in a democracy. I mean, when people sign petitions to legalize such bizarre things as the mandatory euthanasia of senior citizens or petitions to repeal the First Amendment in order to put a halt to negative speech about our president, both of which they have done, well, you do seriously need to wonder, is it possible that an intelligent test should be required in which voters must demonstrate a certain level of proficiency before being allowed to enter the polling booth? The fact is, A new research study examined this very idea. The democratic process relies on the assumption that citizens, the majority of them at least, can recognize the best political candidate or best policy idea when they see it. But a growing body of research has revealed an unfortunate aspect of the human psyche that would seem to disprove this notion and imply instead that democratic elections produce mediocre leadership and policies. The research, led by David Dunning, a psychologist at Cornell, shows that incompetent people are inherently unable to judge the competence of other people or the quality of those people's ideas. For example, if people lack expertise on tax reform, it is very difficult for them to identify the candidates who are actual experts. They simply lack the mental tools needed to make meaningful judgments. Quoting now, As a result, no amount of information or facts about political candidates can override the inherent inability of many voters to accurately evaluate them. On top of that, very smart ideas are going to be hard for people to adopt because most people don't have the sophistication to recognize how good an idea is. Okay, now by contrast, there is an idea called geniocracy that may interest you. The idea is simple. The main principle is that, quote, only those of above average intelligence have the right to vote, while only geniuses are eligible to govern, close quote. What are your thoughts on 
a government of the people, for the people, by the geniuses. I don't know about you, but that is as frightening to me as government by the ignorant and uninformed. I think there's got to be another way. Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? Oh, I totally agree. There has to be another way. You and I have discussed this one uh, a number of times. I don't think we've um, come up with a solution. We've come up with various ideas, but every idea we have tends to be a little bit flawed. I mean, there's a possibility of an IQ test, and that's going to be biased. Um, you could have some kind of test before you go in. I think the best idea you had was if you had the kind of test that you have to have before you become an American citizen. You see, when when I did that... Um, I did a lot of studying for that. I mean, you scared me off about, you know, how difficult that test was. So I really got into the books. And you can actually do college courses at, um, on, you know, the American government and, you know, the whole system and the history and everything. Mm-hmm. And I studied everything. But basically, you know, they, you can get access to like these 50 questions that are the most common questions that are asked. And I think if you were just tested on those 50 questions, the fact is, you know, after some time goes on, we do tend to forget some of these things and we get them wrong. But if you're the kind of person that's going to make the effort to check up and refresh your information, then you've got a much better chance of at least making an informed decision on who to vote for. So I think some kind of test beforehand. I mean, you should know the basics before you're allowed to vote, I think. I concur with that. We get voting, you know, proclamations. We look them over. We decide, you know, the pros and the cons of the different, you know, issues. Uh, It'd be simple enough to draw up something and... uh, then you know that people are voting intelligently as opposed to, well, I'll leave that alone. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Simran Singh and our conversation centered upon her interpretation of personal freedom and the spiritual path. For Simran, feeling responsible for others is a form of servitude, not service. And spiritual freedom is all about becoming childlike and exploring life with an attitude of play. Brennan wrote, I felt that Singh's answers to your tough questions were evasive and basically word games, but I liked her anyway. Go figure. That's cute. Dennis wrote, loved your interview of Simran Singh and how you didn't give her a bunch of softball questions. She She fielded them well. I'm grateful for the existence of both of you. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the fact that Nikki Haley is her sister. Wow. Given my bleeding heart liberal bias, the thought of her being president is greatly disturbing. I told Simran to spread some of her talismanic magic on the governor's mansion. (laughs) All right, that's cute. I don't have to be a bleeding heart, but I'll take that one anyway. Mark wrote, Simran Singh made an important distinction between servitude and service. It sounds as if servitude has to do with a sense of moral duty, although she didn't use that term. Based on her explanation, I think she might agree that with servitude we serve others out of obedience to moral rules or commands without considering our own goals or dreams. Singh did discuss the importance of following our dreams and not of another's. You know, that only works some of the time, Mark. For example, I feel responsible for the care of my children, and my wife and I share their dreams for the future. To me, this is not servitude. Even though at times I must admit to argue with myself about that. (laughs) 
Okay, CB commented, Simran's story around the Rebel Road is a pretty amazing testimonial to trusting the universe. James wrote, excellent show. Thank you for introducing me to Simran's message. Judy remarked, I love her message in I2C 111, 1111, 222, 333, 444, 555, etc. And I keep asking, what does this mean? Richard wrote, this is like buying a red Volkswagen. After you bought one, you see them everywhere, where before you didn't know they existed. Well, amen to that, Richard. Jerry wrote, I just love your show. Please keep doing what you do. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Revisiting the Near-Death Experience, or NDE. Dr. Raymond Moody, in his book, Life After Life, defines a near-death experience, or NDE, as an experience that fits one of the following criteria. One, the experiences of a person who was resuscitated after having been thought, adjudged, or pronounced clinically dead by their doctors. Two, the experiences of a person who in the course of accidents or severe injury or illness came very close to physical death. Three, the experiences of a person who, as they died, told them to other people who were present, and later, those other people reported the content of the death experience. Now, this set of definitions is very broad. Coming close to death could possibly include many different sorts of experiences, ranging from the raging fear one might know when threatened with what appears to be imminent death to cases of serious illness, including those that might be precipitated by something as simple as the flu. So how are we to discern between a real experience and a delusional one, perhaps one brought on by a serious fever? Well, for most skeptics, the only definition suitable is the clinically dead alternative. Indeed, Dr. Kevin Nelson, who's been on our show and is a neurologist in Lexington, Kentucky, studies near-death experiences and says they're not imagined. In his mind, however, the explanation lies in the brain itself. He states that these are real experiences, and they're experiences that happen at a time of medical crisis and danger. Nelson explains it this way. Humans have a lot of reflexes that help keep us alive, part of the fight-flight response that arises when we're confronted with danger. Near-death experiences are a part of the dream mechanism, and the person having the experience is in a REM, or a rapid eye movement state. Quoting Nelson, quote, Part of our fight-or-flight reflexes to keep us alive includes the switch into the REM state of consciousness. Close quote. During REM sleep, there is increased brain activity of visual stimulation. Intense dreaming occurs as a result And what about the bright lights so many people claim to see as well? Well, according to Nelson, quote, the activation of the visual system caused by REM is causing the bright lights, and the tunnel people speak of is the lack of blood flow to the eye. Continuing, he argues, the eye, the retina of the eye, is one of the most exquisitely sensitive tissues to a loss of blood flow, so when blood flow does not reach the eye, vision fails and darkness ensues from the periphery to the center. And that is very likely causing the tunnel effect, close quote. Now, in fairness, Nelson also admits that this does not necessarily explain all NDE experiences, and that's as he told us right here on this show. Now, another guest to our show, Michael Shermer, 
has recently challenged Eben Alexander's report of his NDE, and we'll discuss this in much more detail later in the show, but in Shermer's words, quote, Alexander claims that his cortex was completely shut down and that his near-death experience took place not while his cortex was malfunctioning, but while it was simply off. I asked him how, if his brain was really non-functional, he could have any memory of these experiences, given that memories are a product of neural activity. He responded that he believes the mind can exist separately from the brain. How, where, I inquired, that we don't yet know, he rejoined. So what are we to believe? I want to believe, I personally want to believe, and it's my guess that you would like to as well. But does that mean that we should shudder our intellect and just accept all of these stories carte blanche? Or is there perhaps some middle ground? I mean, perhaps not all of the stories are true, but some are. After all, wouldn't it only take one genuine story to evidence life beyond death? It's been about three years ago now, but we conducted a survey of the evidence for life beyond death. I interviewed over two dozen experts on the subject with this one objective. What would the average reasonable person believe if the evidence were advanced in a court of law? In other words, could we say that there is sufficient evidence to warrant a beyond a reasonable doubt conclusion? That research project is still available for all of you to check out. If interested, a link is posted to it on my website, eldentaylor.com, under Life Beyond Death, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. All right, perhaps we can get answers to all of our questions from the man that brought awareness to the subject and gave it its name, Dr. Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody is a world thought leader in the area of near-death studies, having coined the phrase near-death experience and penned over 11 books on the subject. His famous book, Life After Life, and if you haven't read this one, you've got to go get it and read it, has sold over 13 million copies worldwide and has been re-released for its 25th anniversary edition. Dr. Moody continues to capture enormous public interest with his groundbreaking work and philosophical theories on the near-death experience and what happens when we die. His latest book, Glimpses of Eternity, is a culmination of his findings. It provides some profound insights into this topic, some of which have not been revealed to the public before. Dr. Moody received his N.D. from the Medical College of Georgia. He also received his Ph.D., M.A., and B.A. with honors in philosophy from the University of Virginia. Dr. Moody trains hospice workers, clergy, psychologists, and other medical professionals in all aspects of his work. In his private practice, he has also helped thousands of people who are coping with dying and the deaths of their loved ones. Dr. Moody is a regular public speaker and noted authority. He has appeared three times on Oprah, as well as on hundreds of other local and nationally syndicated programs, such as MSNBC, Grief Recovery, NBC Today, ABC's Turning Point, Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael's show, Geraldo, Joan Rivers, and more. Dr. Moody has been with us before, so on that, let's get the man himself in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Raymond Moody. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you again. Oh, indeed. It's, it's my pleasure. I've been really looking forward to the show. I have to tell you that. I mean, like, super excited. <clears throat> Me too. And, and listen, you will understand that being 69, I am past the age of politeness, right? So I am just going to say it as it is and truthfully 
I think that was the best preface that I have ever had on any interview, seriously, uh, as to the nature of my particular kind of interest in uh, the question of life after death, because you really, um, you got to it right there. It has to do with, um, you know, what sort of rational credence we can give to this uh, kind of idea. Well, you know, one of the things, and I appreciate that very, very much, and being 69 myself, I can relate uh-huh. to everything, my friend, that you're talking about. But, you know, uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is the fact that you are candid in in your exploration. You, you just don't accept everything. You do hold out the, the question marks. I can read you with a great deal of credibility, uh, but I'm going to have to tell you, you know, um, later in the show, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that because there, there have been a couple of things I've seen lately that have caused me to be concerned uh, about where some of this NDE research is going. But before we get into that. Oh, listen, I, me too. So great. Okay. All right. There are three things that we like here on our show uh, from, you know, our guests. And and they are basically who's the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it? So to begin with, you know, tell us about yourself. How and why did you become involved in NDE research? I mean, were you motivated by religion or what? Well, uh, I got to say. I got to go back to when I was seven years old, and I became an astronomer, I mean, you know, and still a passionate devotee of the subject. And um, I had absolutely zero religious awareness, except for the fact my father was kind of sarcastically against it. I assume because he... We, he was a, a medic in World War II in the Pacific Theater. He was a professional military officer, a surgeon. Well, you got the personality type right there. Right. And uh, so, I, you know, he just never dragged us to church. So then and my grandmother was kind of amused about the subject, and but not cynical. But And that was my attitude toward religion, and that was a non-starter for me, but astronomy. And then, going from there, in high school, I got interested in philosophy, but I went to the University of Virginia at age 18 with the idea of um, becoming an astronomy major and getting my Ph.D. in astronomy. But I, because I'd been interested in philosophy a little, I took a philosophy course in September of 1962 at University of Virginia, and the first book we read was Plato's Republic, and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And um, on Plato, really, I'm just absolutely, I mean, I, there's no words, you know, but this is a pretty amazing body of work. And um, so it was in that context that I, that Plato's argument that the question of life after death is the most important question of existence impressed me. I mean, how can you deny it? He he just th- showed it all out there. And so 
but to me, up to that point, see, the notion of an afterlife, I, my notion was the things I'd seen in the cartoons, right, with the uh, angels and harps. And, I, yeah, I, I just thought it was like a cartoon notion. Right. And so, um, but then at the very end of the Republic, there's this uh, amazing account of a warrior who was believed dead and who went through a passageway uh, into an, he got out of his body, he said, and went through a passageway into this other world where his life was reviewed. And Plato, because of this buildup, plainly, you know, it concludes his greatest book with this story, right? And um, the, when he came back, he told all the people that had, all the other soldiers about this adventure. And Plato signals that he himself personally, you know, get credit as this kind of thing. And I quickly knew also, by the way, that this was just a very common thing of these early Greek philosophers. Uh, Heraclitus wrote about it, um, Empedocles, uh, Pythagoras to a degree, and Democritus the atomist. And any the histories of Greek philosophy will tell you that the... These early philosophers studied these cases of they called the revenants or people who were believed dead and came back. And so, to me, and this whole story, and it gets even more that they they also these early philosophers who who founded the whole edifice of Western thought. Um, uh, they also, some of them were, all, I guess, all of them were interested to some degree, and some of them apparently participated in these uh, procedures for evocation of the spirits of the deceased. I mean, this is not New Age stuff. This is there in the standard histories of ancient Greek philosophy. And so that's, to me, see, that was the basis of my interest in this. Well, then, uh, three years later, in 1965, I was the third-year honors student, which, not saying to pat myself on the back, but it was a tutorial honors program, they called it, of, uh, for third and fourth year students in philosophy. And um, I heard about Dr. George Ritchie, who at that time was a professor of psychiatry at the University right. of Virginia Medical School, who apparently, my professor told me, uh, sometime before had been in this, he had been pronounced dead twice, about nine minutes apart. And right. in the interim, had this amazing experience. Of, and so, naturally, I mean, there I am, because I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is what Plato and uh, To me, that was, oh, gosh. Yeah, so, that's an incredible beginning. I mean, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead that said uh, everything that's been written in uh, Western philosophy since oh Plato God, is but yeah. a footnote on Plato's work. Yeah, and it was so George true. Ritchie's book that turned me on to this whole yeah. field. I, you know, it, it, the man's courage when it came time to, you know, to license, he, he either told the truth about this event or he denied it, and he knew that if he told the truth, he he would never clear the licensure board, and he went ahead yeah. and told anyway, or you know shared everything. Oh yeah, when I yeah I knew both I knew George very well, and I knew the other participant in that who the uh, wow the professor yeah who became then subsequently also one of my professors, and um, so yes yes, and this is I mean this just. 
Well, first of all, the 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 wonderful impressiveness of George, who to this day, Elton, is the finest person I ever knew, and this amazing story of getting out of his body in the hospital and uh, you know seeing his own dead body there and undergoing right. a panoramic review of his life and so on. In the Doctor Moody, we have a break coming up here, yeah. so I, and I don't want to cut you off. I, I totally oh, agree no. about. I totally agree. And, and Richie's account of the smokers that were earthbound, uh, yeah. even though they had crossed over, that was one of the reasons I stopped smoking. It's an incredible, oh you know, God. kind of yeah. wake-up call. But we do have this heartbreak. We're speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody about NDEs. You can learn more about Dr. Moody by visiting his website at lifeafterlife.com. That's lifeafterlife.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody about his books and near-death experiences. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have some special meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. This often provides some interesting insight into our guest. And now we just played some of Back in the Saddle Again by Gene Autry. So, Dr. Moody, why is this song important to you and how does it tell us about who you are, sir? Well, when I was a kid, my my um, movie hero was Gene Autry, and I loved cowboy movies. And um, 
that was that was my favorite song when I was a kid, and and I was, in light of your question, I was kind of thinking back on my life, and that is the first, my favorite song when I was a kid, and boy um, theme there, but uh, also Eldon, even more, I was a person not of music, uh, books, and I still have, by the way, my complete collection of. Um, Walt Disney's Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comic books, oh, wow. every one of them, huh. and uh, and still read them. <laughs> and um, so that was my my life as a kid was a lot. I was not an athletic person really at all, and kind of a loner, I guess. And um, you know, I had always had you know just like a small number of friends rather than being very social. And uh, instead, I read books. I mean, oh, my God, just all the kind, just constantly of all of my life read books and uh, went on, as you know, to have two doctoral degrees, a Ph.D. in philosophy uh, from the University of Virginia and a an MD. M.D. degree from the Medical College of Georgia when I was 31 years old. And, and of course, you know, to somebody that age, that might sound impressive. And by the way, three of those years had been, I was a philosophy professor uh, mm-hmm. and, and the interim. So, um, And you've been a perpetual student ever since. Yes, I have. And anyone that knows your work age. knows that. Well, but as you and I look back at this, we can see that is something terribly twisted. Right, and it was because uh, you know there's something wrong with somebody who has two doctoral degrees by the age of 31, and that was true. And um, so that has been both a, a bad thing in many ways, as you can imagine, and also in terms of my work, a source of um, of rigor, I think, because I. The only way, Alvin, that I have of coping with this idea of an afterlife, not having any sort of religious ideas, and also certainly not having any... When I was a kid, I just assumed, well, you know, when you die, it's poof. And um, so that is my basic equipment that I have to work with, and my only technique is the rational process. So as you know, I have... This has been a long process to me to come to the opinion that there is an afterlife. And um, and also skeptical. Oh, my gosh. Man, I, it really irks me. One, there's not many things in this field irk me except that. Let me ask you, I mean, while you're on that subject, let me ask you a couple of pointed questions, okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you've recently been on tour with Eben Alexander. Yes. And you know, and I and I'm going to have to ask you about Dr. Eben Alexander, since you mm-hmm. publicly appear to be endorsing his story, or at least you're not wow. objecting to any of it. So I, I'm going to look for some clarification. I don't want this to be uncomfortable, but Dr. Oh, sure Alexander no. has a colorful background, including falsifying medical records, mm-hmm. for which he has been sued more than once. Uh, and lost those suits. He has. Uh, he's lost his surgical privileges. He, you know, he's been suspended. He's been fired. 
Uh, and although he maintains his medical license, he no longer has a medical practice. Now, his account has also been thoroughly and factually examined and found lacking in turpitude. You know, for example, the coma that Alexander writes about was not caused by bacterial meningitis, but according to Alexander's own doctors, who perhaps he unwisely gave permission to speak, was medically induced. And that alone essentially undermines his key contention that his brain was not working. So now, Dr. Moody, this is provocative enlightenment. And again, you know, I must ask a question of you that is not the easiest one for me to ask, because I certainly do not wish to offend you. I hold you in very high oh, regard. No, no, but no, I do no, please, think please, that this question is very important. In yeah, fact, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. John Turner, urged me to ask this question as well. Uh-huh. Dr. Eben Alexander is out there promoting his own NDE and making statements that neuroscientists cringe at. Now, please bear with me and allow me to quote Dr. Turner, since he has given his permission to do so. Quote, whenever asked my opinion about the book or the doctor, I bite my tongue and itch to call it spoof of heaven. This is because of the totally inaccurate and grossly misleading statements about cortex being shut down, NDE, etc., From what I understand, his physicians put him in a purposeful coma for a few days for brain protection. I did that stuff all the time and never was a patient considered brain dead during the process. It is simply continued general anesthetic. He continues, I met the man in Phoenix and as a neurosurgeon I am stunned and saddened to read of his dark surgical past actions. I would add that there may be some true value, misleading or not, in Alexander's story and that a great many now are opening their eyes and ears to the reality of consciousness persisting beyond death of the physical body, and are led to study further to the understanding that we are all one. Is this not the proof of heaven they seek? Close quote. Now here, now we have asked Dr. Alexander to join us, in all fairness, on this show, but his office, despite our repeated inquiries, have never responded to us. Mm-hmm. So my question to you, Dr. Alexander, is do yeah. Dr. Moody, is do you think Dr. Alexander is doing more harm than good when it comes to establishing the credibility of NDEs? Um, well, thank you so much for that question, uh, Eldon, and also thank you, um, John, for bringing these uh, things to my attention I didn't know about. but Oh, you didn't know well, about this? No, not about what John said, the specifics. Uh, oh. uh, but but I'm I'm you know I, to me the um, that's very clarifying to hear from John. But this is is what I think is that um, in my association with Dr. Alexander, he has always been forthright and honest, and it really does seem to me that he has undergone a profound life transformation and i hear this not just from him but from family members of his that i know and people who knew him before even his his wife and so on and um that secondly um the the 
story is, of course, unusual with, from, in terms of near-death experiences because it, as, as we all know, there are elements that over thousands of cases, say maybe uh, there are 15 or uh, 20 elements that appear, and a single person may have two or three or the whole picture of those, depending often on how close they got to death. And so in that sense that Evan's case is unusual and not reporting things like uh, being out of the body and so on. And yet, at the same time, I want to go on and say, this kind of experience he reports of ascension to some other realm also does occur. I've known people who talk about it that way. They don't go through these preliminary things that talk about more being raptured up into a uh, an alternate state of existence. But to me, the most singly interesting thing... Now, first of all, this is outside of the questions of credibility, which, you know, I, uh, John would be more, you know, know, uh, know more about that than I. But um, well, what was but... most interesting to me about his story was the story of being mired in the muck or this earthworm's eye view and so on um, that, that he described, which is particularly striking to me because, although I have never heard it in a, a report of a near-death experience before, it has some fascinating... Um, I've heard it, for example, in the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre, talked about this mucky state or the uh, being mired in the mud. It's also in um, Dante. It's described in one of C.S. Lewis's novels. Um, and it is also, I believe, I'm, I'm almost sure that it's in Plato because I remember Plato talks not about mud, but he says, something they call mud, and so it would be like in the quotation marks. So now to me, in terms of the way I think about near-death experiences and narrative structure and so on, this kind of thing is very interesting. But And, and like I said, in terms of the personality, Evan has just been really, really, you know, I've, I've known him for three years. He's never given me any kind of... Uh, indication of being you know less than forthcoming and uh and honest so, and so you've then, never you seen know, anything like an ulterior motive uh i mean the man well, was broke you know, and now all of a sudden that. i mean i was i tell you the truth i worked as a forensic psychiatrist one time right, and it was that. back it was back before um that was the thing to do. Matter of fact, I was thought of as distinctly odd <laughs> in the in uh, the early '80s for wanting to pursue that particular uh, and and a maximum security unit for the criminally insane. And right. um, so, of course, that involved a lot of traveling around to little towns to give testimony. And <clears throat> so, at one of these trials, there was this. Um, very stern judge because uh, you know as he had the rest uh, you know the reputation but also as i later learned a very warm-hearted soul who's you know but 
um, I remember being in his courtroom, and he asked me directly this question, um, complete with the robe on, you know, and looking mm-hmm. down, said, um, Dr. Moose, something about what is this man's motivation? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to say what I thought, you know, because I I am incapable, really, of mollifying it for a... So I said, well, look, Judge, I said, I have trouble even every day assessing my own motivations about things much i just i I just don't know even how to judge and i was really ready to be you know found in contempt of court or whatever i didn't know but he looked down and he sort of smiled and he said dr moody that's the wisest um answer i've ever heard from an expert witness so (laughs) my hear that believe me i am the very first to say I don't know and to refrain from judge. We had very good interactions with Evan and um, so and you know I know you know I accept what John says too so we'll see how it, it, all it isn't out. just John I mean you know Dr. Turner is of course uh, uh, oh, sure, you know, sure. familiar with him but, John it's, now, but there are all kinds of uh, you know, independent uh, pieces of information that have come out mm-hmm. that are just a matter of facts. I mean, they would be the facts we would present in a court of law. And these facts uh, suggest that uh, this story just simply didn't happen. And it can be as simple as, well, one of the things that uh, Alexander utilizes to time when he had these events, uh, when all of this was going on, so as to make sure that it's not confused as something as his consciousness was returning, if you will, okay, Uh, is the weather, and there was this storm, and and of course, independent researchers have gone, they've they've checked the weather, they've talked to the weather people, and there was no such storm going on. That's just one of many... um, Again, I, you know, I, I, I'm not. This show is not about Dr. Alexander, uh, but with you out there um, and uh-huh. sharing the limelight with him and and your credibility, it does become something of interest. So since we're still well, there, thank you. You and Dr. Alexander recently participated in a Think Twice uh, a debate titled "Death Is Not Final." Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Novella and Carol that were on the other side. But anyway, yes, the statistical, yes, yes. the statistical data resulting from the debate showed a strong movement away from belief in an afterlife, suggesting, of course, that you lost. They declared that you lost. But you know, what what is your take on the debate, and why do you think you may have lost it? Oh well, how interesting, Eldon. Just to tell you the truth having been in so many different debates as you have been too i just never know you know what the factors are usually and how it comes out just like when i used to sit and watch trials i was most of the time i was surprised at how the jury came out i don't know i don't know and i i just don't know i don't know you know, well, but, for my uh, two bits worth, I think you did a marvelous job on, on uh, your presentation. Well, I do think that, you know, uh, Carol's uh, ability to show that mind was a function of brain, 
uh, went basically unanswered, and that would have been, I, I think, incumbent upon, uh, of course, your partner to, to deal with that. But, okay, if you don't know, you don't know. Uh, let's leave that whole subject. Let me go to this, all right? Mm-hmm. You heard the setup piece. Kevin Nelson has been basically blackballed, if you will, by everybody in the NDE world. And I've talked to him, and he's a very reasonable person who essentially says, you know, not all NDEs are really, you know, credible. Some of them are the result of, you know, REM activity, and and there can be other reasons. It's not to say that there are not true NDEs. It's to show that there are alternatives to some of these stories that people have. Uh, that they tell. Now, not long ago, I had a fellow by the name of Brian Miller on the show, and he had recently had an NDE, and all the headlines around uh, his story said that, you know, he was clinically brain dead and um, covered with a sheet and on his way to the morgue uh, when he recovered. However, when he was on the show and told his story, well, that wasn't quite what happened. you know, uh, and and the bottom line is, there's no doubt in my mind, but what Mr. Miller's life didn't change. He's very sincere, very down to earth person, a truck driver, um, and and he had a very real experience. But I think the question of why do we have Christians who have NDEs with Jesus and Hindus that have NDEs with Hindu gods or Muslims with, mm-hmm. with you know, Islamic uh, figures. Why uh, is this seems so culturally relevant? What, what is your take, therefore, then, on Kevin Nelson's theory of REM activity attached to some of these NDE reports? And why do you think we have a cultural relativity to the reports themselves? How wonderful, Elgin. This is going to be fun. Thank you. Good. Well, well. Number one, Elgin. I can't answer the question from within that framework. And let me say this. Let me let me preface this by saying, since Democritus versus Plato, <laughs> twenty three hundred years, there has been a sort of standard framework of debating these near-death experiences, right? This right. is nothing new. What's new is the CPR is just made a lot more available, right, <laughs> to talk to us, but they've been around all the time. And Plato looked at these stories and said, ah, indicators of an afterlife. Meanwhile, Democritus the Atomist looked at the same stories and said, ah, there is no such thing as a moment of death. Okay. Right. Now, that is the basic problem that we are working within. And that same framework of debate has been going on for 2,300 years. And successively new generations of people who join the thinking join up from the beginning with that as the framework of debate. Now, shift gears. J.L. Austin, my favorite philosopher of the 20th century, said, 
when you have a chronically unresolvable debate, that is something that just goes on and on and on, it went the same way, you know, for long, long times. And there are, that's a common kind of philosophical debate, as you know. I mean, that's why right. they're still in philosophy, is they're still going on like that. Mm-hmm. And that he, but Austin said, in that kind of situation, a good technique is to think not. What is it that these two parties are disagreeing about, but rather ask what the two parties are agreeing about, and therefore never gets aired or discussed? You see, and he indicated, as often happens, that that's what keeps these kind of debates going. Well, that's what's happening here, as I can show anyone who will reason with me through a chain of thought. And that basically there is another way out of this, that what both parties are agreeing on is that a sentence like, there is life after death, is a statemental thing with a literal meaning and is a true or false okay but that's the that's the error from the beginning and it can't be solved within that framework the way you got to do it and listen i'm not a person who bows down to plato or worship the reason i talk about plato is that for everything i have seen in my 40 something years of being interested in this subject for 50 years now um he's just right the way he set it out he said when you think about this problem of rational uh, inquiry into life after death he said there's 10 sort of factors that you know that are essential to it and i don't worry pretty quick yeah i'm not going to do all of them but basically let's say the most important ones are that there's narratives, okay? There's always some kind of narrative to it because that's all we have is the story about some experience. But also, Plato said, you've got to have some set of concepts to bring to it. And that is where I think that I have made a major breakthrough because the concepts are not those of the scientific method but they're not irrational either. They are logical concepts that that come from rational principles, and it that has to do with acknowledging. I'm going to have to with, step in on you, Doctor. Oh, sure, sure. We'll we'll pick that up when we come back. I don't want the computer Great. to kick us out, and and gotcha. we'll come back and let you flesh that all out. And there's no doubt in my mind, but what you have not made that significant contribution. Again, if you'd like to know more about Doctor Raymond Moody and his work, visit his site. Or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. All right, we have a film featuring our guests during the break. You can watch it in our chat room, so if you're not already there, now's the time to get on over there. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, 
And welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Dr. Raymond Moody about his books and research in the near-death experiences. But before we get back to the show, I do want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies, and from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And... I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at Facebook.com, Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, one more point of business before we return to the show. The Hay House World Summit is almost upon us, and I would encourage you to register for this wonderful event. It's free and online. You can check out all the details and register at EldonTaylor.com. All right. Now, Dr. Moody, we just played some of your second musical choice, Get a Job by the Silhouettes. What's the story about this one, sir? Well, um, I was one of those kids who, when I was that age and when those songs were coming out and I was a teenager, um, Eldon, I'll just tell you the truth. I didn't pay that much attention. I was listening to... um, uh, other kinds of things, I you know, classical music and stuff. But, but, um, and nonetheless, you heard those songs, so they were always in the background. And then, as I began to go through my philosophical education, um, and to into my central life's work, Elton has been right there at the beginning of life after life. I say. Uh, quite openly, I said, "Look, I come into this. I bring what I bring to this is that I have this background in philosophy, and my specialties are logic and philosophy of language. And what I meant by saying it there at the beginning is that's what I'm interested in. And to me, the the life after death thing is a sort of corollary to this bigger interest in." unintelligibility. That is, as crazy as it sounds, uh, Eldon, the central concept to which the whole life-after-death question boils down is to the concept of unintelligibility. And that sounds so darn abstruse and all those boring things. I don't it, think so, you know, but reality. you chose, you chose J.L. Austin, which is really paying a one super, con, you know, compliment to a philosopher as your favorite. But you know how A.J. Iyer would have answered Austin. Uh, that basically, you know, he's asking a meaningless question. Um, yeah. and, and, and we can, you know, philosophers do that with one another just as we're questioning you know, the nature of this experience. So the philosophy has its absolute domain here. There but at the you same go, time, Eldon. That's my point, that this is not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. And the real thing, the whole... But I think machinery. it's both, Dr. Moody. I think, you know, philo- I, I, I love philosophy. You know that. We've chatted before. Um, I, I would have... You know, I would have loved to have been a professor of philosophy. There just wasn't any money in it, and I had to do psychology instead. So the bottom line is this, though. Uh, I've always been, you know, of the mind that philosophy is the master discipline. I mean, the reason you have a Ph. 
when you get a Ph.D. in anything, chemistry, is it's the philosophy of chemistry. It is the master discipline. It's the first discipline. So when I say, I think it has a place here, you know, that's, that's the light that I mean. But in coming back full front to dealing with a specificity of, of some of these issues, am I to conclude that you do or do not agree with Nelson that some of the NDEs are REM experiences? I have no idea if they are or not. <laughs> I have thought about it for years, and, you know, the next person who comes along will probably contradict Matt Elton. Let me guess. Okay, but... I still got to go back to what I was saying. Is that oh, please, okay. The 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 problem here, as I see it, after fifty two years of thinking about it, for what that's worth, is that is just as Plato said. There's always got to be a narrative, a story, okay? Because and the storyline has to be there just because the notion of an afterlife is so obscure and almost incoherent, that the mind has to have some storyline to get the thought started. But then Plato indicates, see, even if you had a billion of these stories, it wouldn't add up to any information whatsoever, certainly not a proof of life after death. And he said, what is also needed is a set of concepts. And and what happened in the late 19th century, as you know, that these people who became the parapsychologist and so on, um, said, well, you know, this question, they want to reemerge, which had been submerged and, uh, you know, for so long that they say, now let's try it with science, right? Well, as you know, that's my, in my opinion, that's the error, the slippage right there. And that it's not a scientific question. It's still a philosophical question. And so, so that set of concepts is not going to be helpful to us. Well, why do we need concepts? Well, because you've got to you've got to link the narratives somehow with the sentence or the statement um, that there is life after death, and you've got to have some sort of set of you know concepts in between. Well, science won't do it, and um, so. That that is a major difficulty. See, it, it's I just the whole way of debating about life after death as and near death experiences as it currently is conducted to me is just not interesting. But well, what you know, I am ready to say is that I have a set of concepts now, and incidentally, I'm talking about a set of concepts that. Bring about, once you know them all, an entirely new set of, or a, a set of new principles for rational thinking. Now, at this point, flags may come up, somebody may say, oh, oh, he has gone and manufactured some kind of set of rules that just generate the conclusion there's life after death. No. I suspect I could do that. I mean, it'd take me about a day to figure out how, how but it'd be a waste of time, totally in, uninteresting. I'm talking about a wholly different kind of thing. I mean, and investigating some other seemingly unrelated concept and really getting a thorough uh, 
system going to understand that concept first? And then once that is all taken care of, it just so happens that what you find out in that kind of enterprise does shed a startling new light on the question of life after death and ways to investigate it. But you can't do that without going through a a series of observations and a chain of reasoning which leads you to, in effect, to, and Eldon, this sounds so crazy. You know, I know I'm I'm prepared at age 69 to sound psychotic when I know from long experience that I'm right. And it boils down to that the solution to moving the question of life after death forward on a rational basis, I will emphasize, real reason, not just coming up with some reasons to support what you already believe. I mean a set of rules for figuring out not what, or not that there's an afterlife, but rather getting some indication as to whether there is. And so what is going to has been happening thus far, Eldon, which you can imagine how frustrating, is that what rivets people to the, to the subject of life after death, let's you and I face it because we can see it, is the narratives, right? right? It's like we've got to hear endless narratives. And it's, right. these things, listening to these things, and what they do is that they cause a sort of thirst to hear more of them. And yeah. you see that with people who are interested in that subject, right? Yeah. Now, by comparison, just what would you guess from your knowledge of the American people? Let's just take the average American person. Do you think that that person is going to be a more amenable to listening to stories? Or is that person going to be more amenable to thinking through a a line of reasoning about some concept. See what I'm getting at? <laughs> yeah, we and what the answer this, to that. They want the stories, of course. That's right. And so what that creates is, a, in reality, the situation where the people who get so hooked and enthralled by the narratives and can never get enough and whose formulation of the question is that they sure would get wish they would get some rational proof of an afterlife. You hear that all the time. But in the reality, when when that would mean sitting down and thinking through a long chain of reasoning about something that initially seems very counterintuitive and also, um, you know, just hard in the sense that it involves some thinking, then you can see what's going to win out. But, but... For anybody who fits in that second category, who, who is willing to sort of follow through a chain of reasoning uh, from simple observations, now there is a situation has arisen where we can have amazing new insights about life after death and also opening up entirely new rational means to investigate them. That's the, afterlife, that's the outline of it. Now, David Hume said in a famous remark, I mean, this is 
you know, if you, in terms of people who study the history of genuine rational thought about the afterlife and philosophy and so on, it, there's a kind of wide agreement that David Hume said it best. It's not that it's right because Hume said it. It's that it's right, and then we notice that Hume said it best and most eloquently mm -hmm. when he said, By the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Now, what he's saying is, you see, to be real, I mean, to, to think rationally about the afterlife, really you have to kind of, kind of wake up. And, and one thing involved in the, wa the waking up process is to realize that when you say the sentence, there is life after death, that that is a self-contradiction. Because if you look up the words of the dic in the dictionary, sure. what, mean, what death means is the final irreversible cessation of life. So right. a sentence like, there is life after death, translates into, there is life after the final irreversible cessation of life. And that is a self-contradiction. Now, at this point, some may say, oh, you're picking, you know, that's picky, or it's just, it's just words or semantics. No, it's the essence of the problem. Yeah, and you're and, right back to there's no such thing as a moment um, before right. death. And I mean, also, you're either dead or alive. Also, Eldon, because any other phrase that people use to express this notion of an afterlife falls down in some similar way. I mean, it's all, the point is, and it gets right back to the point here is that the notion of an afterlife is unintelligible. That's what people who are scientists will tell you who are, who are objecting to the parapsychological stuff and so on, because, you know, they, and they happen to be right. Now, up to this time, that has always been a fatal flaw because it's, if, if we can show that something is unintelligible, then that means that by definition there's no rational way to study it, right? It's, you know, how can you investigate something which doesn't mean anything? Well, what I'm saying is that now that problem is solved, that I, I you know, I have worked out this the system of rational principles Un unpack that, that system. Unpack I'm that sorry. system for us. Unpack that system that you've worked out, Dr. Moody. Unpack it for Okay, us. great, great, great. Well, got to go back to the history of logic and we to realize that <clears throat> these notions of truth and falsehood that we regard so instinctively true actually have a very precise historical uh, origin. Parmenides, about 500 B.C., conceptualized the notion of truth, that is, that some things are the case, are the case regardless of what anybody may think about it. And then about 100 years later, Plato pointed out that just as some sentences are the case no matter what anybody thinks, namely, have this property truth, so... Plato said that there are these other sentences that are not the case, no matter what anybody thinks about it, and those he called false. Okay, now, at that same time, that was the place where the division between the literal and the figurative came. 
And so that Plato linked the literal meaning and the true or false with the search for knowledge. Okay, But he also, in another dialogue, realized and analyzed very brilliantly that another thing here is unintelligibility, because some things are not just true or false and literally meaningful. For example... Twas brilliant the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. Or listen to this one, and next, an entirely different one. Holiness pursues the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. And here's a yet a different one. If when you're doing this experiment, you smell an odorless gas, it is carbon monoxide. Well, right there, Eldrin, we've already seen three entirely different patterns of nonsense or meaningless, unintelligible right. language. And let me just say, I've identified over 70 different patterns in my 50 years of studying unintelligibility. And so then once we can devise a, a, um, a framework, a typology of nonsense or a typology of meaningless, unintelligible language, then we can go back and we can we can map the exact structure of the notion of life after death in a very detailed way, as I have done. And we can also show some rather surprising and, and by no means bad but great things about um, near-death experiences, for example, that nobody else has noticed. For example, Eldon, when I was in junior high, I read this. I think Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln, in which it said that when Lincoln was president and he was at a solemn state ceremony, I forgot what it was, and he was, all these people were gathered around, and his part in the ceremony called for him to mount a horse and to lead a procession away from the site. And when he did. The horse picked its back hoof up and got it stuck in the stirrup. So the horse began to dance around, right? Okay. And everybody was shocked into silence. Oh, poor Mr. Lincoln. And oh, how terrible and all. But Lincoln just very calmly looked down at the horse and said, Well, if you're getting on, I'm getting off. <laughs> and everybody just broke in, you know, just laughed and laughed and it broke the tension. Well, now, first of all, we got to admit, see, that is nonsense, right? It's, I mean, it just is totally unintelligible to say that a horse gets on its own back by, you know, putting a hoof in the stirrup and climbing a bore. I mean, it's nonsense. Yet at the same time, you've got to acknowledge that it brings a very vivid image to your mind of that very motion. Now, what in the world is moody psychotic? I mean, what does this have to do with near-death experiences? Now, what, but what we've seen from that is that nonsense can generate a, a feeling of motion in your mind even when it's just meaningless, unintelligible nonsense. Now, flash forward, near-death experiences. What do people tell us who come back from a close call with death? They say, well, first of all, it... It was totally ineffable. I have no words. It's beyond words. And they also tell us, as we both know, that there was no time, that this was a timeless frame of existence. Or, uh, 
and also that it did not exist in space as you and I appreciate it. So it was aspatial, okay? Now, but what they go on to say in a way to express this is they say, I got out of my body. I went through a tunnel into a light. I met my deceased relatives. I saw my life pass and review. I returned to my body and came back to life. Eldon, we recognize that from our basic literary studies course as a travel narrative, right? Correct. Now, <clears throat> let me, let's ask ourselves, what sort of meaning does a travel narrative have when the stipulation of the narrative is there, there was no space and no time and no words for it. You see what I mean? And so if we are to be realistic, many people are not going to follow what their reason shows. But I like to do it not out of virtue but because of fun. And so what my reason shows me is that these near-death experiences, as they are related, are nonsensical travel narratives. Okay, And that is a good thing, because it also follows Eldon, as I could show you by a similar argument. And you just signal to me whether you want to hear the argument or, or whether you'd rather me just get to the conclusion. But well, here's what we, I could We show. have one minute before we're going to have oh. to go to break, and I want to hear the sure. argument and the conclusion. Sure. So okay. keep me warmed up for another 45 seconds, huh? Okay, cool, cool. So, um, but the, it's, it's basically uh, that now we know that, that it's true, and we also know that the question of an afterlife is very important. I mean, the fact that something is a nonsensical question doesn't mean that it's not an important question. As a matter of fact, it's life after death is the most important question of existence. And science in 2014 is not going to enlighten us on it. But I think there's a new way of looking at it, that by acknowledging the fact that the notion of life after death is unintelligible, then we can treat it as a nonsensical idea and we can figure a way out of it through entirely new means of investigating the question. I, I like that approach, and, and when we come back from the break, I want to I want to pick it up. I want you to finish. I want you to give us, uh, you know, the story. All right. We right. hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your phone calls. So if you have a question for Doctor Moody, do call in. You can do that by dialing one eight seven seven two three zero three zero six two. Stay tuned. We always save the best for last, and have we ever got the best coming up in just a moment or two? You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's Inner Talk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, Inner Talk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.intertalk.com. 
That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com. Intertalk dot com. Now, back to the show. Now you know some fellas, they want fame and fortune. Yeah, and other fellas, they just want to swing. But all I wanted all my life was a TV set and a truck and a wife and a front row seat to hear old John sing. Yeah, the TV and the truck I got on credit. And I got that girl with a little old Woolworth ring. And life was warm and life was sweet, but still it was kind of incomplete without a front row seat to hear old John sing. Hey, John, you walk the line. Do deal you one more time And when you do Them cotton fields You warm this Heart of mine bow, 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 bow. So one day I thought Hey, I'm gonna do it That's what I said So I mortgaged the farm And pawned her wedding ring I sold the gold tooth Out of my mouth And jumped in the pickup And headed south For front row seat Your old John Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody about his books and research into near-death experiences. We'll take your phone calls in this half hour. So if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Dr. Moody, we just played some of it. This song brings a smile to my face. A front row seat to hear old Johnny sing by Shel Silverstein. Yeah. Why is this music important to you, sir? Well, in terms of background, uh, Shel Silverstein is one of my uh, favorite nonsense writers and, uh, and and humorist, and my daughter's favorite uh, author, she says. And to uh, contextualize it, this is what nonsense is all about. You know, one of the strangest things about the subject of unintelligibility and nonsense is that if you approach it by asking people to tell you what they think nonsense is, they come back with something negative. They say, oh, falsehood, um, you know, madness, uh, something chaotic or whatever. But if you if you introduce the subject by First, exposing them to familiar nonsense like Shel Silverstein's writing or sha-na-na-na-na, which is the use of nonsense um, framed off against meaningful segments like get a job, get a job, so that, that the combination has more power than either alone. And incidentally, Eldon, that was the... Uh, the working piece of the ancient shaman songs, which you can see from the scholarly works about shamanism, that the essence of a shaman, shaman song was like a uh, doo-wop song, that there was elements of nonsense combined with elements of meaningful language to create a more powerful structure than either one alone. So that is, and, and so that is the 
point of two of my songs there, but also with respect to that last one about the front row seats to see uh, old Johnny sing reminds me that um, I'm going to be in Wisconsin, uh, upstate Wisconsin, in a few days. And uh-huh. would like to give this email if I could, or not email, oh, please but do. Yeah. website. Yeah, tell us all about the event. Sure, do. Great. And the, the website is www.wisconsinhealing.com. That's, that's wisconsinhealing.com. And I'm going to be up there with uh, some other people who are interested in this kind of thing, and we're going to have a big uh, weekend event in a very beautiful setting um, discussing this question of life after death and other uh, important spiritual topics. I'm personally looking forward to meeting the, uh, the other participants, myself, and seeing what they have to say. But it's all spelled out there on the website where, where people can go uh, to see the program or to uh, and when is this happening, program. Dr. Moody? I'm sorry? When is this happening? This is happening this coming weekend. Uh, well, week from, leaving this weekend? To, yes. Uh-huh, I'm okay. leaving tomorrow morning to go there. I'll be there in Wisconsin tomorrow night, and the event will be on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So the 16th, 17th, and 18th for everybody listening in yes. from the Wisconsin area. Uh, definitely you want to get over there and, and take yep, a look at it. Up in the woods and Wisconsin, a beautiful place, and also there's plenty of instructions about how to get there to um, the place on, the, on with your vehicles and so on. Or on the to, website. Yeah. Okay. Ravinder, can you see that there's a link on our site to, to that you page so in case, you know? Okay. Yep. Let, let me see if I can conceptually get this kind of correct up to now. I mean, we have many nonsensical statements. Mm-hmm. that are nevertheless meaningful statements. But because they're, as they are, they're inherently out of reach of science. Have I, have I got you there up to this go, point? There you go, Eldon, that's perfect. That, okay, cool. That let's, let's, okay, let's, let's pick it up from there then. All right. Okay, so, now. Go ahead. Now, Eldon, I will be able to take you through an argument to, to show, enable you to see, that if somebody, let's say a person such as you or me or any one of us, went into some other, from this state of existence or state of reality, into some other incommensurable frame of existence or reality, and came back from it, then we would expect that they would have to talk nonsense about it, right? Mm -hmm. And if they didn't talk nonsense about their experience, something would be wrong. Because we can see that 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 happens, that the mind uh, forced from one state of reality to some other frame of, uh, other incommensurable state of reality would necessarily talk nonsense about the experience okay now number one how do we prove that and number two how does it relate to the the uh the near-death experience well we already showed how it related to the near-death experience because we showed that the near-death experience 
stories are a, a kind of nonsensical travel narrative. Okay, but now, in regard to, to the first, um, let's take the Escher drawings, okay, which I guess probably everybody is seeing by now, and choose your favorite one, or let's, let's say the one of the hooded figures on the endless staircase, right? Okay. Going around and around and around. And um, two things. If we, if we consider that as a two-dimensional surface, then we can give a complete, meaningful description of it with only three instruments, a ruler, a protractor, and a uh, what the graphic artist called a value scale, or like a shade gauge, in effect, everything from white to black with all the intermediates. And so you could take that Escher drawing and you could say, well, this line here is seven and a half inches long, and it goes off from this line here at, say, 76 degrees or whatever, whatever, or whatever. And it would be a complicated undertaking, of course, but with that, you could, draw, you could create a perfectly meaningful and, and intelligible description of that surface. However, if we now try to describe the scene in that drawing, what we have to say is that the hooded figure goes up one staircase, turns a right angle, goes up the next staircase, <clears throat> turns another right angle, then turns, goes up that next staircase, then turns a right angle at the top of, the, of it, then goes up another and so on, and gets back exactly to where he was before. And that's right. nonsense. Do you right. see what I mean? I do, so, absolutely. This is what I call cross-dimensional nonsense. Nonsense has a cross-dimensional quality. Paradoxical as that may seem, it is, um, you know, it's the essence of a shaman song. That's what shaman songs of shamans said they were doing. They said, we pass over to the other side by the power of our songs, they said. And that what this was all about was that the nonsense creates altered states of consciousness in the mind which people interpret to be entering into some other framework of reality. That's how it works. You can see it in ancient magical documents, how people used magical nonsense words that were meaningless and unintelligible to induce the states needed, for example, to to see apparitions of the deceased at the oracles of the dead. I mean, oh, this is all very strange, but you can read about it. And, for example, the Greek magical papyri published by the University of Chicago Press is wacky as all this stuff says. It seems it's, it's a reality. Now, now... Um, and, and there's, oh, God, I could give you like a hundred cartoon renderings of this, how the, when, the, when the, an individual goes into some other frame of reality, nonsense is always involved. So what I'm getting at, it's not bad news, but good news that we can show that the, the uh, narratives of near-death experiences are nonsensical travel narratives. Now, now, now that we've got it that far, 
one thing I can just report to you, I mean, this is all very complicated, but I have learned, and you could see for yourself by doing the experiment, that if, if when somebody is talking nonsense inadvertently, people can talk nonsense deliberately, like Dr. Seuss, but they can also do it inadvertently, like in delirium, for example. Okay. Or in psychosis, or or just being confused about a concept, and that latter way happens all the time in philosophy classes, because when you get students thinking about these very abstruse concepts, they, when their first attempts are often they stumble over into nonsense, and so that's an ideal opportunity teaching philosophy to see what happens to someone when they realize that what they've been saying is unintelligible nonsense. And so what I can tell you they do, and you can see for yourself, is that first of all they try to they try to correct it in some way to bring it back toward intelligibility. See what I'm getting at? To say it better so that it's a better match. And then through a process they finally get it to the right to the insight that's satisfying. Now, let's couple these two things together with another thought, Elvin, and I know if I am psychotic, please tell me, but how does that possibly relate to studying near-death experiences? Well, we've all heard scenes, uh, uh, words like, it's 4.3 light years to Alpha Centauri. Well, you know, exactly how did they figure that one out? I mean, you you can't send a homing pigeon out there with an odometer. So how did they get that one? Well, it had to do with the fact that by then, by the 20s, they knew from Newtonian mechanics that's about 93 million miles on the average from the Earth to the Sun. So that makes an 186 million mile radius of the Earth's orbit. And so they waited until on the Earth, when Earth was in a certain point, you see, in its orbit. Then they measured the angle to star, certain nearby stars. Then they waited exactly six months later, and they measured the angle then to the same stars when the Earth was on the direct opposite side of the orbit. And that gives you what's called parallax, just from your understanding of high-stagol trigonometry. You know, that's the way to figure out the distance out there, right? Well... Now, let's shift it to what I was saying about before. Now, we already have one very, you know, just immense numbers of narratives of near-death experiences, which make them a travel narrative, okay, because it's seen, that way of talking about it is seen through the lens just of Aristotelian logic. But... Now I have educated lots and lots of people over this uh, over the years of an entirely new set of logic or rational principles that tell us not how literal true or false statements work, but how meaningless, unintelligible language, namely nonsense, works. Okay, and so what we we can do. We've prepared lots of people with these additional sets of principles, and not that this was the intention of the experiment, but it just naturally will happen that just by chance, in the future time, some people who have been so prepared 
will have a near-death experience. And they will be facing the question of how to articulate it, not just limited entirely by the like, the the literal true or false logic, which is still used. I mean, it's not replacing, but supplementing. But they will have a supplementary lens of how to proceed logically when the topic or when the sentence that you're dealing with is unintelligible and nonsensical. And so just by what we said about the high school, I mean, my... uh, college students, that what they will naturally do is that they will reformulate, you see, their, their uh, recounting of it with a, pre, with a foreknowledge already knowing of that kind of limitation. So that will drive them toward a different frame or a different okay. modality of recounting. All right, that I've got you from a logical standpoint now, Dr. Moody, and and I concur with you that you know the nature of a lot of this investigation is outside the scope of what science can or cannot prove. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and we could argue, you know, that perhaps Iyer is correct and. And uh, it, it's meaningless if science or observation cannot confirm. But I would tend to concur with you that that's a, a preposterous statement to make with something as meaningful as whether or not personal consciousness survives death. So with that in place, we still nevertheless find that it isn't just the stories that get in, you know, people interested in NDEs, it's the artifacts of NDEs. We hear, for example, you talked about travel stories. We hear, for example, about, you know, uh, OBEs, the out-of-body experience, which mm-hmm. is a part of the travel story. You know, and I, I, John Lermer, for example, was on this show, and he shared with us a story about an old coin that rested high on some piece of equipment in an operating room that you couldn't see from the floor. But the individual who had the NDE that reported this to Lerma, that Lerma was telling us about his patient, uh, during their NDE, they had an out-of-body. They saw this coin. They described the coin to him. He went back into the the surgical room and was able to find the exact coin. It turned out it was a rare coin, I think a quarter or something of that nature. But whatever the the case was, it was exactly as Lermeyer had described it. So OBEs are commonly reported as a part of the NDE, and that becomes an artifact that sets out here on the table that naysayers, the skeptics, if you will, uh, can take a look at. Now, the problem, as I see it, with merging the artifacts with your argument of concepts is, you know, when when we attempt to scientifically verify that this sort of thing could happen, like uh, Dr. Penny Sartori is, is doing with playing cards by placing them in obvious places on top of operating room cabinets at a hospital in Wales... Uh, no one that is having these experiences, including their OBEs, ever sees the cards. So how do we integrate the inability of science to verify what is a, you know, an important artifact and claim of an individual 
um, with with the conceptual notion that well you know science can't really investigate well theoretically they may not but they can look at these artifacts where do you, where do you stand on that well well you know Eldrin I just baldly I'll say this that the kind of experiments or things that you're describing are typical parapsychological experiments but just to get to the, the to the point of it, I would say that even if let's say even let's just grant that some of the some experiments like that worked and that people were able to describe, wouldn't they, that be pretty but, compelling? Well, no, no, no. But if Plato pointed this out a long time ago. He said, "You can't prove that." that a soul is going to be immortal, or whatever you say, just by proving it can escape the body. Cause they said, no, but let's you, say, could I mean, it might prove, you could prove that mind exists independent of brain, and that, well, well, that is a crux of the issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not so sure. It, it, let, let, me, let, me, let me go forward and say... Please, I'll shut up. I think that the... the primary difficulty to me in the whole parapsychological enterprise is that it's trying to prove transcendent states in by physicalistic experiments, right? It always boils down to something that is observable in the physical world. But I think it's a fallacy to go from the from from those two levels and so i would say that the way i can see get to get out of this is to much along the way of speaking of air and the skepticism there even more so hume that it's got to be a whole new logic that opens up unknown faculties of the mind and that what I would say is that that is going to enable us to grapple or to make contact with or get a hold of, whatever word you'd want to use, of the transcendent aspect of the experience, okay. the Elton. Well, we're almost because out of time, Dr. Moody, and I, and I appreciate is. what you're saying, but, yeah, what, so what but it also is, comes down to this. If, if we discard... Um, the physical ability to verify. If we throw science out in that sense, then we throw out also the artifacts. So the idea no, that no, these I don't, things... No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, but, well, um, I, I would love to have you flesh that out, but I have a oh, choice great, here. Great. I can either have you flesh that out in the 45 seconds we have left, or I can have you tell everybody about your website and your meeting in Wisconsin before we wrap up. So why don't you tell well, them once again how to get a hold of you so that they can themselves learn the answer here and how to, uh, uh, you know, how to obtain more information about this Wisconsin. In 30 seconds, please, sir. Go ahead, Dr. Wisconsinhealing.com. www.wisconsinhealing.com. Hello. And your website? And it's lifeafterlife.com. And I'm going to tell you, do go to Dr. Moody's website. Do check out his books. Uh, 
If there's somebody credible on this issue, there is nobody more so than Dr. Moody. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.